Good morning. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Jonathan Perdome, and I'm one of the pastoral residents here at OGC. And for those of you who do know me, you may remember that the first time I got to preach here was only my second week on the job, and I got the unique privilege of preaching on the super light topic of the fact that we will be judged for every careless word that we speak. And just so that we don't break our easy streak, and because Jim loves me so much, you may have gathered from the sermon text this morning that we'll be talking about another light subject, namely that of adultery. Now, honestly, I don't want to approach the subject with levity at all, because I recognize that for many of us here this morning, when we think about adultery, we aren't thinking about some vague concept. For some of us here this morning, we may actually be remembering the sting of shame and regret for things done by us in the past. For still others of us, we may be remembering sleepless nights spent weeping, wondering why such a thing would happen to us. So whether we have been uh, witness to an esteemed leader who has fallen to adultery, or whether we have been the victim of adultery ourselves, or whether we've committed it, I think that both life experience and scripture both show us that adultery is not something that just crops up overnight. Instead, sadly, it develops over time on three main fronts. And those three main fronts that we'll see from our text this morning are our attitudes, our habits, and lastly, our affections. And if you've been walking with us through uh, Proverbs over the past couple of weeks, you'll know that we aren't just approaching this topic of adultery in a vacuum. Instead, you'll know that Solomon has touched on several different Subjects in the bigger context of wisdom. And it is, after all, the whole point of the book of Proverbs. And in approaching all of these subjects with wisdom, he's doing the same thing here in Proverbs 4. He jumps right in and he says in Proverbs 4, verse 1, Hear, O sons, a father's instructions, and be attentive that you may gain insight. Verse 7 says, Get wisdom, and whatever you get, get insight. Lastly, in verse 20, my son, be attentive to my words, incline your ear to my sayings. And if you read these chapters, you'll know that Solomon continues on to repeat these exhortations over and over again from chapters 4 to 7. So this sheer repetition of these exhortations, I think, begged the question for us this morning. Why is he repeating himself so much? Why does he have to exhort us over and over again to take heed, to pay attention, to incline our ear to wisdom? Is it not obvious that wisdom is to be preferred above folly? Is it not obvious that a life full of discernment is better than a life full of foolishness? Well, maybe it's not so obvious after all, because otherwise, why is he repeating himself so much? And he even goes so far as to put this in a question form in, ver- in chap- chapter 8, where he personifies wisdom in the person of lady wisdom. And he says, does wisdom not call? Does understanding not raise her voice? 
And in this context, Lady Wisdom is literally standing on a street corner, raising her voice, inviting anyone who would come to her to listen, to take heed, to incline their ear to what she's saying. But as clear as she's raising her voice and as loud as she's speaking, Solomon is giving us this repetition of exhortations because he know, he knows that ladies, Lady Wisdom's voice is not the only voice that is vying for our attention. He knows that there's another voice in play, and that's the, the voice of Lady Folly, who, as Proverbs 7 says, persuades us with seductive speech, and she compels us with smooth talk. Now, I think it's really important to note this morning what this text is not saying. Because this text is not saying that women are evil, wily seductresses that are the main reason why uh, innocent, unwitting men fall into the trap of adultery. Instead, this is a text that's talking about Lady Folly, who is the exact opposite of all of the attributes of Lady Wisdom. And she is seducing us, and she is alluring us to fall, both men and women, into the trap of folly. So seeing that there are these two voices, the voice of Lady Folly and the voice of Lady Wisdom, how do we practically incline our ear to Lady Wisdom? Well, one of the continual refrains, refrains in Proverbs is that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And likewise, humility is absolutely foundational for getting wisdom. For instance, in Proverbs chapter 11, verse 2, it says that pride, when pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with the humble, there is wisdom. So if we were to sum up everything that Solomon is saying here, he's saying that in order to get wisdom, and especially the wisdom that escapes the voice of Lady Folly, we have to have the right posture. In other words, we have to have the right attitude. And the essence, the very essence of this attitude is none other than humility. Because if we have a humble attitude, we will recognize our desperate need for wisdom. We will recognize our need to hear from other voices outside of ourselves rather than trusting our own so-called wisdom. In short, the right attitude for getting wisdom, the humble attitude for getting wisdom is actually pretty paradoxical because the right attitude for getting wisdom is one that recognizes that it's not already wise. Because when we think that we're already wise, we don't listen to warnings. We don't take heed to the very present dangers that are around us. And we may think that we're unique. We may think that we're more clever than other people. And we will think, that would never happen to me. I'm not like those people over there. And this is precisely the attitude that, that Solomon uh, exhorts us to not have in Proverbs. In chapter 4, he says, Do not enter the path of the wicked. Do not walk on the way of the evil. Avoid it. Do not go on it. Turn away from it and pass on. He's urging us again because he knows where our attitudes can veer off towards. But what happens in Proverbs 7? We see the proverbial young man who is being allured by the voice of Lady Folly. So Solomon says, 
For at the window of my house, I have looked out through my lattice, and I have seen among the simple, I have perceived among the youths, a young man lacking sense, passing along the street corner near her house, taking the road to her house in the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness. Now, Solomon doesn't give us, he doesn't make us privy to the inner dialogue of this young man, but you can almost hear how he's thinking. It's as if he's saying, I just want to take a peek. I know I shouldn't be snooping around here right now, but I just want to check this out and see what it's like. After all, I can always turn back. And when he thinks like this, he's doing two things. He's overestimating his own strength, his own moral fortitude to be able to stand up in the face of that kind of temptation. And secondly, he underestimates the danger that's right in front of him. And he does this because he has the wrong attitude. He has the attitude that Solomon describes in chapter 6 as one who holds fire close to his chest thinking that he can't be burned. He's not even aware of his own weakness. And that is, after all, what a lack of humility does to us. It, it makes us ignore the obvious. It makes our senses dull to what is blatant around us. It causes big, fat blind spots in our field of vision. So I think what we should ask ourselves this morning are a couple of questions. Do we have attitudes that that recognize our desperate need for wisdom? Or do we think and fancy ourselves already wise? Do we have humble attitudes that are willing and, and excited to hear from voices outside of ourselves that can see us better than we can see ourselves? Or do we decide to ignore those voices and ignore their warnings? Because it takes a right, it takes a humble attitude to escape the voice of Lady Folly. But that's not all it takes. It also takes right habits. So look back with me at chapter 4. In verse 16 and 17, Solomon is talking about the ungodly here. And he says, For they cannot sleep unless they have done wrong. They are robbed of sleep unless they have made someone stumble, for they eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. And then Solomon continues on in in verses 20 to 27. And in these verses, he's exhorting, in contrast to the ungodly, he's exhorting the godly. And when he does this, he underscores all the different parts of the body of the godly in his exhortations. So read 20 to 27 with me. He says, My son, be attentive to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Let them not escape your sight. Keep them within your heart. Keep your heart with all vigilance. Put away from you crooked speech and put devious talk from you, far from you. Let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet. Then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right And to the left, turn your foot away from evil. So what is Solomon saying here? Why is he talking about the the eating and the drinking and the sleeping of the ungodly? And then why is he talking about the different body parts of the godly? 
Well, he's mentioning all these things because he's drawing our attention to the daily mundane rhythms of life, the daily activities of both the godly and the ungodly. In other words, what he's doing is he's he's underscoring their habits. So what they do with their time, what we do with our time, uh, what we do with our bank account, uh, what our minds tend to wander to when we're alone, what we do with social media, what we do pretty much with anything. All of this uh, describes the totality of our habitual life. And the interesting thing about our habits is that they're never neutral. We're always being formed. We're always being shaped and molded by our habits. So Solomon here is saying, you're either being formed and shaped and molded by ungodliness and folly, or you're being molded and shaped and formed by godliness and wisdom. And this is perhaps all the more pressing for us today in our cultural moment, because unlike any other culture in history before us, we have more access to more information in an instant than any other people. We are the target of more advertisement than any other people that come before us. And we, on a daily basis, are offered more worldviews, whether we're aware of it or not, than any other people in history. And we are being formed. We're being shaped. These are not passive things. We're being formed and shaped by our consumption of these things, by our consumption of social media, by our consumption of different news sources, whatever perspective they may offer us. We're being formed and shaped by the narratives that are in the films we watch and the, and the shows that we binge watch. These are all forming and shaping and molding us over time. And this is perhaps one of the biggest reasons why we're launching formation groups because what we're trying to do is, is an eternal, internal audit, so to speak, to see what it is that has, what sources in our information diet have the biggest opportunity to form and mold and shape our hearts on a daily basis. And you know, the, the Greeks, the ancient Greeks, the ancient Hebrews all understood this. They knew that people needed to be formed, they needed to be shaped, they needed to be molded over time so that they would actually love and, and desire the things that they ought to love and desire. And likewise, St. Augustine of Hippo, he knew that the big problem with people's hearts is essentially that we had disordered loves. So both the Greeks and the Hebrews and, and St. Augustine of Hippo knew that our biggest problem is that when we desire and love certain things, we tend to desire and love certain things too much, and we tend to desire and love other things too little. So when we did this, we disordered our love such that we found certain things so important that they would end up crushing us under their weight and they would end up controlling our lives. So what they propose is that we would be formed and molded and shaped so that we ought to order our loves and love what we ought to love. Now, in contrast to this, in our modern, enlightened cultural moment. We live in a, in a different age in which our 
cultural moment, it pr- proposes to us a different reason for formation, a different reason for molding and shaping our hearts. And that reason is, is that we should be liberated. We should be freed to discover and express our most authentic conception of our very selves. And this is what's come to be called expressive individualism. So what that means is, is that each person comes to discover and express his most, most authentic ex, uh, understanding and expression of himself when he, he finds this in his inward experience of his feelings, whatever each individual may deem those feelings to be. So what that means is that whatever we desire, especially if we have a deep, deep longing and desire, especially in this context, a, a romantic or sexual one in nature, we simply must express it. We have to express it in order to express our most authentic conception of ourselves. To suppress such a thing would be harmful to us, psychologically and emotionally. And this is what our culture tells us on a daily basis and forms us and molds us in, in this narrative. And the interesting thing about this is that we hear the same cultural voice echoed in the voice of Lady Folly in chapter 7. In verse 18, she says, Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. So what's she doing? She's taking one desire, one romantic or sexual desire, and she's elevating it. She's saying, come, let's express it. We can no longer, we can no longer uh, suppress this feeling. We have to express it. And she does this by two different uh, means. She does, the first means is what uh, the commentator Derek Kidner calls the shock treatment. So what she does is she tries to overwhelm our senses, to inundate our very senses with this narrative. So how she does this is that she, uh, in verse 16 and 17, she says, I have spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linen. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. So she is making this cultural belief, she's making it attractive. She's making an appeal to us in all of our taste and smell and, and what we see and what we hear on a daily basis. And then secondly, she's created a plausible story. She's created something that is pretty convincing. So she's, she says, come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves in love. I have made a peace offering. She says this in verse 14. I've made a peace offering and... Biblically speaking, when you made a peace offering in that context, what you were doing is you were signaling a, an occasion for celebration. So she, what she's saying is, is, come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let's express these feelings of love and these, these feelings of desire and passion. There's nothing to be ashamed of here. There's nothing to feel guilty about here. Only love worth celebrating. So all in all, what Lady Folly wants to do in this context is she wants to elevate one human desire, one human impulse to the level of ultimate. She wants to disorder our loves and she wants to take this one impulse and make it, and one desire and make it so important that it becomes how we define our very selves. Now, I think that 
begs the question for us this morning. When is it ever good to stake your whole identity on one desire or one impulse? When is it good to elevate one human love to that level of importance? I think Solomon answers this question in chapter 7 and at the end of the chapter in 25 to 27, those verses, he tells us, Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths, for many a victim has she laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. So what Solomon is saying is, if you get your, your loves disordered in this way, it will only lead to destruction. It will only lead to death. We aren't made to have our, our loves disordered in this way. So what's the alternative? The alternative is what we were saying before. It's what Augustine was saying. We need to have our loves ordered. We need to develop habits so that we should love, uh, order our loves so that it will bring about flourishing in our hearts and in the relationships around us. So, how do we do that? Well, we said that Lady Folly's path, her way of disordering loves, leads to destruction, leads to, de- to death. But opposite from that, uh, Solomon in chapter 6, verse 23, suggests the way of life. He says, For the commandment is a lamp, and the teaching a light, and the reproofs of discipline are the way of life. Now, when you hear this, you might be thinking, ugh, what a killjoy. Reproofs, discipline, correction, boring. And that makes sense because we kind of come by this, honestly. We live in a a culture of instant gratification. We live in a culture that's everything now. But as I think about that, I think that's actually too simplistic. It's too reductionistic to think of us as always constantly wanting uh, instant gratification. We do, but I want to say that we're also not fundamentally lazy. We actually will allow ourselves, all of us, to be submitted to regimens of discipline, if you will, for whatever it is that we actually want. It just depends on what we actually want. And I say this because I got to meet one of my favorite pastors and authors uh, in 2014. And I went up to him and I said, how in the world do you find time as a pastor every week preaching sermons to read all the things that you read, quote all the things that you quote, and then footnote all of that in your books? When do you do that? And you know how he answered? He said, you do what you want to do. And my little 25-year-old brain just exploded in that moment because I knew what he was saying was true. He was saying that we allow ourselves to be uh, trained by what we treasure. We allow ourselves, our habits to be formed by what we hunger for. We allow ourselves to be disciplined by what we desire. And this is what Solomon knows to be true. And because he knows this is true... He gives us this, he issues this, this most famous verse in chapter 4, verse 23. He says, keep your heart, guard your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the wellsprings of life. Guard it, keep it. Later in chapter 7, he says, my son, keep my words, guard my words. Same word, keep, guard, treasure my precepts. 
And he's saying this because he knows that whatever it is that's at the very center of our affections and our heart, we will guard like a Swiss bank guards a trust fund. So he's saying, let God's word be in that very place. Let God's word have the emotional capital in your heart such that he will come and form you and shape you and mold you. And so he will order your loves and bring you human flourishing and, the, and your relationships flourishing. I think one practical way to do this is what Charles Spurgeon suggests in one of his devotions called Morning and Evening. And he likens this discipline of molding and shaping and forming our habits to the pressing of grapes to make good wine. And personally, I think that's really appropriate. But he says, we ought to muse upon the things of God because we thus get the real nutriment out of them. Truth is like the cluster is something like the cluster of the vine. If we would have wine from it, we must bruise it. We must press and we must squeeze it many times. The bruiser's feet must come down joyfully upon the bunches, or else the juice will not flow. And they must well tread the grapes, or else much of the precious liquid will be wasted. So we must, by meditation, tread the clusters of truth if we would get the wine of consolation therefrom. So what he's saying is, is this discipline of meditating on digesting God's word over and over, pressing the grapes until we get the wine of consolation from God's word. So this is one of the disciplines that can help us form habits that can order our loves. So that's discipline. But what about correction? If you remember back in chapter 6, verse 23, he says, he talks about the, the reproofs of correction. And here again, you might be thinking, ick, correction. And we come by this, honestly, because we're Western individualists and we think, who are you to tell me how to live my life? But, uh, and we also might come by this, honestly, because we've had other experiences, unfortunately. Maybe we've had experiences even in a church context in the past in which someone came to try to correct us. But instead of correcting us, they just came and blasted us. They weren't, they weren't loving. They weren't tactful. They didn't care about us. They just care about telling us the truth. And that hurts. Or perhaps you had an even worse experience than that. And you, and you had a, a, a pastor or a leader, an elder try to correct you, and instead what he was doing was trying to lord his authority over you. And neither of these things is correction. This is not what the Lord means by that, and neither of these things please him. But I think this still begs the question, if no one has the right in your life to gently, lovingly suggest that maybe sometimes you're erring, maybe sometimes you've got something wrong, then when, not if, but when you become self-deceived and you start harming yourself and others, who will be able to help you? I think this comes back to the, the posture of humility. Because if you have a, a humble posture, you'll realize that you need people to correct you. You'll need people who can see your blind spots and you'll gladly accept it. It may not feel good, but you'll gladly accept it because you know how deceitful and how hardened your heart can become to sin. I recently heard someone 
put it this way, a, a wise friend of mine said, I may be a mile down the road, but I'm still a foot from the ditch. What he was saying is, is I recognize that I made some progress and I might be okay-ish, but I'm still susceptible to falling. I'm still susceptible to deceiving myself. And this is nothing different than what the author to the Hebrews says in chapter 3. He says, exhort one another daily as long as it's called a day so that none of you may be deceived or hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So this is what this, this correction is. It's this mutual exhortation, mutual encouragement that recognizes that we all need help. We all need help to see our blind spots. We need people in our lives who love us, who can see those blind spots, who will gently come alongside us and say, hey, you're going to hurt yourself. You're going to hurt other people. And, and this mutual exhortation is this correction. We need people who, who can love us, who can encourage us, who can correct us. We even need people who love us so much that metaphorically they would break an arm. They would harm our ego a little bit so that we, we don't, so they can get us off the train tracks because the train's coming to blow up our lives. As Solomon later says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. So these are the habits, these are the attitudes that escape Lady Folly. And I don't know about you, when I hear all these attitudes and I hear all these habits, I get a little overwhelmed because I realize that I don't always have the most humble attitude. I'm not always aware of my own weaknesses. And I also realize that I'm not always the poster boy for the disciplined life. So what do we do? Well, the good news is, is that that our attitudes and our habits are not enough to fundamentally change our hearts. They can, we can do behavior modification. Anyone can do that. But to fundamentally change us in a heart level, we'd have to have something else. We can't just take the logs, so to speak, the, the fireplace logs of our habits and our attitudes and put them in the fireplace and just hope that they catch fire. We need, we need a source of heat. We need a source of of warmth. So where do we get that source of warmth? In other words, where do we warm our affections in order to bring about this change? Well, many people have noticed over time that, that people aren't fundamentally only changed by facts. In other words, data is not enough to change the heart and the, the thinking of a human. We actually need something more. We need a beautiful story. That's why Pixar, Pixar is so good at what they do. They, they can compel us with a narrative that makes us feel something, that, pr- that proposes facts to us, and it changes our minds. And the cool thing here is that we, we have just such a narrative right here in Proverbs chapter 4. Look at it with me at uh, verses 3 through 4. He says, When I was still a child with my father... Tender, the only one in the sight of my mother, he taught me, saying, Let your heart hold fast my words, keep my commandments, and live. So it's like we get this little flashback of these fond childhood memories here. But whose flashback? Whose memories are these? Who's this child? Who's the father? Who's the mother? Well, if you've been walking with us through the series, you'll know that. 
the vast majority of the Proverbs were written by King Solomon. And if you know the story of King Solomon, you know that King Solomon's father was King David, the man after God's own heart. And if you know King Solomon's story, you'll know that King David's, uh, you know that King Solomon's mother is Bathsheba, who originally was not King David's wife, but instead Uriah the Hittite's wife, which means that King David committed adultery with Bathsheba. And thus we get King Solomon, who's the very one who is urging us and exhorting us to incline our ear to wisdom over and over. So we're getting these exhortations from one who is the very fruit of adultery. And if you think about Solomon's story, it's not like he's the very picture of fidelity himself. And if you think still further, you'll realize that our story isn't all that different from his either. In fact, from, from Genesis to Revelation, the Bible is really just one big story. And crazy enough, it's actually the story of adultery. It's the story of a God who makes a covenant with a special people. He makes a marriage covenant with his bride. And he promises, and actually does it, he promises to always love them and to always be faithful to them, to them and to never leave them and never forsake them. But how does, does his bride respond? She betrays him. She commits adultery. She leaves him and she betrays him and she runs after other lovers, other gods, other idols. And she does this over and over and over and over and you know what? This is our story. We are the adulterers. Adulterers against God who's made this covenant with us. And we've been caught in the act. So what does God do? He sends us the, the, the divorce papers, right? He leaves us. Because after all, we deserve it. But that's not what God does. Listen to the, the, the words of the prophet Isaiah who records these very words of God. God says, Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth, and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he has called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. So you see, this is the whole story of the whole Bible. The story of a bride who sinks further and further into shame and sin in her betrayal and her adultery against her bridegroom, God himself. But it's also the story of God himself taking on flesh to become the most brilliant and beautiful manifestation of a bridegroom that history has ever seen. 
And he does this in the person of Jesus Christ, who humbles himself, takes on flesh, and goes so far as to lay down his life for this betraying, adulterous bride. So much so that he takes on her unfaithfulness onto himself and gets punished for it and gifts her that very bride with his faithfulness and presents her to the Father without spot, without blemish, pure, holy, clean, arrayed in the most beautiful wedding dress the world has ever seen. This is the story of the gospel. This story is the very story that warms our affections. It warms our affections and it brings heat to our, uh, our attitudes and our habits. So may we warm our affections at the story of this gospel over 